This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society. Hello and welcome to Let's Get Physiological, the podcast where we explore some of the weird and wonderful science behind life. In this episode, we'll be focusing on one of the most important aspects of physiology, breathing. We'll be speaking to Mike Tipton about the recent Royal National Lifeboat Institution's Respect the Water campaign. And to Laura Crotty Alexander about how e-cigarettes could be affecting our health. I'm Amy Warnock. And I'm Emily Wilde. Now, let's get physiological. We lose about 600 people a year um, to immersion-related deaths. And sadly, around about 200 of those are suicides, and about 400 of them are accidents. So we're losing somebody about every 20 hours in the UK to immersion, and one child a week. It's the second most common cause of accidental death, but it's so common that it's kind of staying below the radar. That was Mike Tipton. Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at the University of Portsmouth. We spoke to Mike to find out more about how understanding physiology can inform a campaign such as the Royal National Lifeboat Institution's Respect the Water campaign, which aims to reduce the number of deaths from drowning. And so we think that quite a lot of these deaths are preventable if people understand some basics about the responses to going into cold water about what to do when you're first in the water. And so our research has over the years looked into what happens when you go into cold water and then the best things to do to minimise the potential hazards. So what is it about cold water immersion that's so lethal? So for years, people thought that the reason you died when you went into cold water was hypothermia, and that sort of myth began with the Titanic. It became clear after many years of research and anecdotal data as well as statistical data that you find that about two-thirds of those that die, die within about two or three metres of a safe refuge and about two-thirds of those that die were regarded as good swimmers. So clearly a good swimmer doesn't die from the protracted period of immersion necessary for hypothermia. Um, in a couple of minutes. In any case, if you take the average adult and you put them in a pair of swimming trunks and you drop them into zero degree water, they won't become hypothermic in less than about 30 minutes. We're just too big an animal. We've got too much heat and, and too much thermal inertia. So these deaths that were occurring were clearly due to something that was happening much more rapidly. And so we did some experiments and we found that there's an uncontrollable breathing response on initial immersion. It's driven by the skin cold receptors when stimulated by rapid fall in skin temperature, which you really only get on cold water immersion. They drive gasping and then they drive uncontrollable hyperventilation. And we now think that that respiratory response to initial immersion is the most dangerous of all the responses that you can have because it's likely to result in drowning. The lethal dose of water in the lung for drowning for an average adult is around about 1.5 litres of salt water, about 3 litres of fresh water. Um, The gasp I get when I first go into cold water is around about 2 litres. So that big inspiratory gasp driven by 
sudden fall in, in the skin temperature and the stimulation of the cold receptors can almost immediately put you above the lethal dose for drowning. Scientists think that one of the reasons for this different in lethal amounts of salt water versus fresh water is that when you take salt water into the body, it stays in the lung and actually draws more fluid into the lung from your blood. This means that it puts a greater strain on the heart, so the heart stops sooner. So this physiological response, a sharp intake of breath in response to cold shock, is likely to be what causes the majority of drowning cases in cold water. But why do you even have this response if it's so dangerous for us? We think it's an exaggerated fight or flight response. So people will know that when you get into um, adverse situations, the body has a response which prepares it for action. Now, we're a tropical animal, so we actually want to be in 28 degree air temperature. So going into something like the average water temperature around the British Isles, which is 12 degrees Celsius, represents a very, very significant stress to the body. And as a consequence, we think the body gets an exaggerated fight or flight response, which would be fine if we were in air. But of course, it's completely inappropriate when we're in water. So that physiological response of gasping, of hyperventilation, is an exaggerated form of the response that we would have in air to prepare us to run away or, or to fight. So this sharp, involuntary intake of breath can be lethal when submerged in water. And this actually forms the basis of the Royal National Lifeboat Institute's Respect the Water campaign. We asked Mike to explain what the campaign was about. The first part of the response of the, of the Respect the Water campaign was to say, look, exactly that, respect the water. Um, Realise that you'll get these uncontrollable and overwhelming responses and that they are the precursor to very sudden death through in particular drowning um, but the next stage is okay well about half the people who fall into cold water or enter the water had no intention of going in it was a complete accident so although they may respect the water there's not much they can do about it if they're going to fall in accidentally so the second part of that campaign was to look at what to do in the first minutes of immersion and that's all founded on the physiology of understanding the cold shock response, the response of peripheral cold receptors, in the knowledge that when you first stimulate those responses, you get a dynamic response of the cold receptors. That's when the cold shock response is at its biggest, when the respiratory response is at its greatest. But like every other receptor, sensory receptor, they adapt with time. And so you get a pretty big respiratory response and cardiac response in the first minute of immersion, but by about 90 seconds, that response is going away. And so the secret is to do exactly the opposite of what the body instinctively is trying to get you to do. It's trying to get you to be activated, to run away, to fight and thrash about. But in fact, if you can stay still, keep the airway clear of the water for that first minute, minute and a half of immersion, you have a much better chance of surviving and avoiding drowning. This campaign is a great example of how scientists can work together with other organisations to make sure that their research can help to change lives. I mean, one of the really nice things about the RLI Respect the Water campaign is the opportunity it's given me as a physiologist to work with a whole range of other individuals with different skill sets. 
And so it's a really nice bit of applied science when you see what essentially is one graph from a respiratory trace from a cold water immersion experiment turned into a public awareness campaign and marketing and adverts at the victorious um, you know, festival. So that's a really interesting thing. You know, science is not conducted in complete isolation. It gives you the opportunity to interact and work with really highly skilled people and experts in other disciplines. So obviously the fact that cold water shock produces this sharp intake of breath is a huge problem in terms of drowning. But we were interested to find out if cold water immersion could ever be a good thing. There's lots of different bits of research going on in terms of immersion in cold water. There's some people who do research looking at immersion in cold water as a way of pre-cooling athletes to help them deal with relatively short-term exercise in the heat. So if they can start with a lower deep body temperature, then they'll reach a critical higher temperature later. Um, Others are using cold water immersion. I'm sure everybody has seen people unhappily climbing into ice baths after they've done exercise because the combination of the compression of the water and the cold of the water is supposed to act as an anti-inflammatory stimulant and make you recover more quickly. And then there's one final, very unusual circumstance in which people go under the water and they actually drown. They take sufficient water into in and out of the lung to drown but the water is so cold that it cools the heart and it cools the blood supply to the brain and it preserves the brain and so although they drown and they are in cardiorespiratory arrest they're actually salvageable. Uh, The current record for submersion with recovery is 66 minutes so it's uh, yeah there are circumstances in which people who go into cold water may benefit from it But on the whole, they're very rare in comparison with the number of people who have a problem. Okay, so now it's time for Physiology in Films. So this is the part of the show where we investigate some of the physiology behind the blockbusters. Okay, so the film that I've chosen to talk about today is one of the greats, released in 1997 and winner of loads of awards, telling the story of an infamous voyage and an iceberg. Aha, uh-huh. would it be Titanic by any chance? It is the Titanic. Um, and the part that I want to focus on is the scene where Rose and Jack are clinging onto the stern of the sinking ship and then they go underwater. And Rose is underwater for approximately 35 seconds. Now, physiologically, it's quite unlikely that she would have survived this because the temperature of the seawater around where the Titanic sunk was actually around minus two degrees Celsius. Wow, okay. And as we heard from Mike, this is definitely cold shock territory. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's unlikely that Rose would have been able to hold her breath for 35 seconds before taking an involuntary intake of water as a result of cold shock, likely kind of leading to drowning. However, it's not totally implausible because if she had been cold habituated, it is possible that she could have held her breath for that long. Okay, okay. So generally implausible, but if she's been cold habituated, actually could be fine. (laughs) 
quite unlikely that this kind of, you know, upper class lady was a kind of frequent cold water swimmer. I don't know. But I mean, like earlier, know. earlier in the evening, she'd been sort of dunking in and out of water to go and save Jack and that. Was, was yeah. that enough? <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe. Um, but it, I'm going to say that this is quite physiologically unlikely that it was realistic at that point. Okay. And then finally, interesting fact, they obviously had to film a lot of the water scenes and they filmed them in cold tanks. Mm-hmm. And Kate was actually struck down with pneumonia after filming. Oh my goodness. So this kind of highlights the slightly longer term negative consequences of cold water you'd think they'd do it in like nice bath temperature water wouldn't you <laughs> but then you wouldn't get the kind of shaking and stuff yeah that's true I, I don't think she wore a wetsuit and i think a few other members of the cast did so this might have kind of contributed oh, to okay. it okay so this actually leads us really well onto um physiology fact or fiction Okay, so this is the feature where we discuss some common physiology myths and try and figure out if they're true or false. Okay, so I'm kind of straying off the typical format, so I'm not doing a true or false. I'm going to just ask you outright, how long do you think the record is for holding your breath? Well, you said the average person can hold their breath for about two minutes. Um, I think I'd really struggle to do that, so... I reckon, you know, like a professional breath holder could maybe get to about seven minutes. Okay, well, actually, the record for holding your breath is 11 minutes and Ooh. 54 seconds. That's a real, like, you can do a lot in 11 minutes. Yeah, exactly. So um, this was by Branko Petrovic of Serbia, and he currently holds the record for holding his breath wow. for that long. But... If you want to get into the Guinness Book of Records... I was going to ask, yeah. is there a Guinness World Book of Records? Well, I'm so glad you did. Of course there is, Amy. Um, then you're actually allowed to breathe in pure oxygen for 30 minutes oh, before. Cheeky. I know. So for this record, actually somebody managed to hold their breath for a whopping 24 minutes and three seconds. No. Yes. That's that's like a spin class. That is an entire spin <laughs> class. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. How do they uh how do they check? That that it's a great question. I do not know do the you, answer. Do they have to wear a nose clip? Maybe or? a nose clip or like um like a breathing. Yeah, I mean thing I'm sure so they can, they've like, developed detect. some sort of you would imagine breathing so. apparatus. You would imagine so, yeah. So with the benefit of breathing pure oxygen at the beginning, which kind of takes away as much carbon dioxide as, as possible, the, the record is for Alex Segura of Spain. Wow. At a whopping 23 minutes and three seconds. That honestly is, has blown my mind. Ten years ago, few of us had heard the term e-cigarette. Now, it's not unusual for us to be greeted with clouds of bubblegum-flavoured vapour when we're walking down the street. In fact, it's now thought that over 3 million people in the UK vape. But what is vaping doing to our bodies? We spoke to Laura Crotty-Alexander, Associate Professor at UC San Diego School of Medicine, to find out more. E-cigarettes are short for electronic cigarettes, and they encompass a wide number of different devices – So there are vape pens, pod devices, mods, um, many e-cigarettes, cigalikes, and all of these are different forms of e-cigarettes. 
all e-cigarettes have a battery and then a container of liquid. And this liquid is made up of three main chemicals. So a lot of people think that it's just nicotine and water, and so it makes a water vapor, and that's why there's a common misconception that they're healthy and safe. Um, but actually, the liquids are propylene glycol, uh, vegetable glycerin, and nicotine. So all e-cigarettes have these three chemical components in them. And so when you take a puff off of an e-cigarette, that activates the battery to heat a coil that the e-liquid is surrounding. So the e-liquid gets heated and then pulled through a little mesh that uh, turns it into a vapor, and that's called an atomizer. One of the main reasons people use e-cigarettes is to help them quit or reduce smoking. But are e-cigarettes actually any good as a smoking cessation aid? The modern version of e-cigarette was invented in 2003 in China, and it went on the international market in 2007. And so since then, uh, they've gone across the world um, and have become very popular. But in the first few years, when people studied them to see if they were going to be helpful as a nicotine replacement uh, device, they were not. Um, and some reasons for that is that the earlier versions of the e-cigarette were not very good at getting nicotine across into the bloodstream. And so people who smoke cigarettes are used to getting a certain surge of nicotine when they smoke, and they were not getting that with the e-cigarette. And so it was not successful as a smoking cessation device. However, the newer generations of e-cigarettes are much more powerful and they have been better designed to get nicotine across into the bloodstream. So as a nicotine replacement therapy, um, they are more successful. And the most recent studies coming out on e-cigarettes as used as a smoking cessation device have shown that they can be uh, helpful in getting people to A, stop smoking, and or B, cut down the number of cigarettes they're actually taking in every day. However, they're replacing that one inhalant with the e-cigarette vapor. Um, so it doesn't get rid of the nicotine addiction. It replaces it with a different inhalant. It is often believed that e-cigarettes are a good replacement for standard cigarettes because it is assumed that they are a healthy alternative. But how much evidence is there to support this? So there has been a lot of advertising and promotion of e-cigarettes as a healthier option than conventional cigarettes. Certain phrases are used that say these are healthy, they're green, they're cool. So a lot of people believe that they're healthier because that's really the image that the companies have been shooting for. But on the scientific level, so I've been studying these for over six years, and they are chemicals. You, you are breathing in chemicals, and there's no way that that is going to be healthy for you. So in my work, we have been using mice and having them breathe in the e-cigarette vapor because in mice, you can find out what would happen to humans over like 50 to 60 years. You can find that out in months. And so having mice breathe in the e-cigarette vapor for an hour a day for months at a time, um, we have found lots of changes across the body and the brain, the heart, kidneys, the lungs. So the e-cigarette vapor is not benign. It is not healthy. It, you're breathing in chemicals and 
every time we've studied the inhalation of any chemical, it has uh, been found to cause trouble. So e-cigarettes might not be the healthy smoking alternative that they're often billed as. So how can research into e-cigarettes help us fully understand their effects on the body? I often get the question of why did you start studying these? And the real reason is I'm a lung doctor, so I'm an MD. So I've had lots of patients come in who are smokers, and they ask me if they should be switching to an e-cigarette. And I didn't have an answer. And I was really worried about them because as a lung doctor, I know that all these things that we inhale, the lung doesn't like it. The lung is very sensitive. Um, And so I began my studies because I felt like if we could identify parts of the e-cigarette or e-liquid that were dangerous and more toxic, we could get this information out and that the companies themselves would likely change and remove those components because they want their customers to live a long time and they want people to you know, be able to use these in a healthy way. Um, so if we can provide them that data, then they can make a safer device. So there's been a fair amount of work on flavors. There's over 5,000 different e-cigarette flavors. And when researchers have looked at the chemical composition of each flavor, each one is different from another. Some flavors appear to be more toxic uh, and dangerous than others. And so a fair amount of work is going into that to try and map that out. Uh, And again, get that information back out to the public to be like, hey, you might want to avoid the apple flavors because overall those look like they're causing a lot more trouble than mint flavors. So clearly there are possible health problems that come with vaping. But as e-cigarette popularity increases, particularly among the younger generations, what else should we be concerned about? The e-cigarettes in the United States have a very high level of nicotine um, in some of them. So they have upwards of 59 milligrams per mil of nicotine, whereas in the United Kingdom, the highest is 18 milligrams per mil. And when I'm talking to people to try and inform them of what might happen if they picked up an e-cigarette and used it, is that if you pick it up and you take one puff, There's a lot of nicotine that will get across your bloodstream, go to your brain, and activate the dopamine reward centers. These are the same reward centers that are activated when you get a like on Facebook or you get a text message from somebody you really like. So these little positive things create little flashes of dopamine reward. And taking a puff off of an e-cigarette activates that same pathway But with the very high levels of nicotine, you get very high levels of activation of that reward center such that nothing else can compete. So we're seeing um, kids who used to like to play with their puppy or go out and play with their friends, but suddenly those activities can't activate their reward center to the same level that an e-cigarette can. And so they lose interest in hanging out with their family, playing, going to school. And so these are major problems with addiction 
and we're really worried about it. And so I'm really glad that in the UK they have limited the nicotine level because I, I'm hoping that that keeps the numbers lower for uh, adolescents and teenagers who've never smoked consistently to sort of make it not as rewarding uh, to use an e-cigarette. And now it's time for, oh my God, I can't believe it's a research study, but it actually is. The part of the show where we talk about some of physiology's most funny and fascinating studies. So for this experiment, as we've been talking about breathing, I picked it mainly for the title of the paper and then got actually quite absorbed into what it's about. And now I'm really interested and I don't think it's funny at all. I think it's just fascinating. So first of all, this paper was published in 1991 and it's called The Effects of Unilateral Forced Nostril Breathing on Cognition. Oh, okay. So this, uh, so we're talking forced to breathe through your nose while doing difficult maths questions. Well, we're talking about forced unilateral nostril breathing. So forced to breathe oh. through just one nostril. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so this is what I just found fascinating because I couldn't stop laughing at the thought of people just, you know, breathing through one nostril. I, I mean, but this is just like me pretty much every winter with a cold, right? Right. Well, once I started doing some research about this, this is where it gets really interesting and you're going to see how much of a nerd I really am. So have you ever heard of the nasal cycle? No, I haven't, but right. tell me more. I know. So the nasal cycle undergoes an ultradian rhythm. So these are these sort of rhythms we have. You've all heard of like the sleep-wake cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is another sort of cycle that happens in humans. And it's basically the blocking and unblocking of your nostrils on a sort of unilateral level. So you know how when your nostril, your nose gets blocked, sometimes yeah. it's just one nostril and it's like, really annoying. Like all the time. Yeah, and so that's actually a cycle that happens in your body. And it happens in about 70 to 80% of healthy adults on a daily basis. So from a kind of like evolutionary perspective or just a physiological perspective, is it to keep you alive? Well, I'm not sure if it's to keep you alive, but... It has been associated with different activations of different hemispheres of your brain. And so this is kind of where this study is coming from. So what they did is they forced people, forcing sounds horrible, but they are just making people breathe through one nostril. Uh, and how do they do that? Are we thinking like no nose idea. clips? No idea, nose clips, no, okay. blocking something. But blocking yeah. something, okay. Um, so they did this in a group of, of students um, and they made the students breathe through just one nostril for 30 minutes and then made them do different sort of cognitive performance tasks. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it turns out that if you breathe through your left nostril for half an hour in both males and females, you're then better at performing spatial tasks. No. Yeah. No. Whereas if you breathe through your right nostril, you're better at verbal tasks. Right. So you're saying next exam I have, which, you know, hopefully I've passed the stage of exams. But like, let's say I'm doing my GCSEs half an hour before, do a nose clip. Do a strategic nose clip. (laughs) Nose clip. (laughs) And then power through mass GCSE. Yeah. But isn't that fascinating? Like, it is obviously hilarious because... But I mean, they made people wear nose clips yeah, and exactly. do maths tests. But this is actually, you know, something that has been around for ages. Because I don't know if you've ever been to a yoga class where they sort of force you to, like, yes. breathe through yeah. different nostrils yeah. and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So this is something that's been around for ages. And it's a specific sort of yogic breathing called pranayama. Um, which has been around for over 5,000 years. Wow. So, you know, it, it's an interesting theory. It's an interesting bit of science. Yeah. Is it really true that yeah. breathing through one nostril is activating one hemisphere of your brain? Yeah. I don't know. But in this study, apparently so. So that's all from us on the physiology of breathing. 
from a physiological respiratory response to cold water shock and how this informed a national campaign, to e-cigarettes and how they might not be as safe as often assumed. And we hope you've learned some interesting facts in between. I've been Amy Warnock. And I've been Emily Wilde. And we've been Getting Physiological. This podcast has been brought to you by the Physiological Society.